What is Den Hoffa Day? Welcome to Fanatsu. Today, I'm your host. Uh, this is Larry, who's usually behind the scenes. Uh, not just producer today, but produce slash host. Um, and today we have, uh, before we get to our guest today, um, just like to remind all our subscribers, all our viewers to visit our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash fanatsu um, to help um, fund our podcast and continue our work on decolonization and uh, bringing conversations to more of a general audience. Uh, so if you could please just visit our uh, Patreon page again, patreon.com slash fanatsu with our um Three tiers there, the Hatsa, Huga, and Tulu tiers, each uh, with their respective uh, benefits and uh, other decolonial conversations. So today's uh, guests, we have um, two intelligent indigenous women here for the decolonization conference that's going on tomorrow and Friday at uh, Sheraton Hotel. Uh, we have Mililani Trask from Hawaii and then Sanja Creamer from Australia. Um, so, of course, for those of you who study decolonization and indigenous issues, you would probably have an idea of who these women are and what they've done. But I wouldn't want to uh, be the one to describe that. I'll let them speak for themselves. So if you would like to just go ahead and introduce yourselves to our, our audience. Good afternoon. My name's Sandra Creamer. I'm a Kalkadoon Wandi from Queensland, Australia. I'm a lawyer as well as I'm an adjunct professor in health and also work with the women's organisation in Queens in Australia. Um, I have worked in the international arena for nearly 15 years and I have worked in the national arena for many years. So it's a real pleasure to be here and I hope that um, we can provide really good information and that um, people can get um, some sort of idea of how we're thinking in different parts of the balls of what decolonisation is about. Thank you. Aloha, I'm Billy Lenny Trask. I'm Kanaka Maoli. I'm a native Hawaiian from Hawaii. Uh, during my legal career, I first uh, practiced at home, but when I began to look at cultural and ethnic inequality uh, within the U.S. system towards our own peoples in Hawaii, I realized that we needed all in Hawaii, myself included, to learn about human rights and how we could advance them. And so that took me to the United nations and after many years I was honored there by being named the Pacific Basin expert to the inaugural uh, United Nations Permanent Forum. Since that time, I've continued to be an advocate for human rights, not only for Hawaiians, for all indigenous peoples, but now with a particular focus on those of the Pacific Basin, uh, because we see uh, within the United Nations and global system that colonization has not ended, that it is alive and well in some places, the Caribbean, and certainly in the Pacific Basin. So this is one area of focus that we are all coming together on. And I think that it's very timely and appropriate because we are seeing now the expansion of American militarism throughout the South Pacific and also uh, with regards to certain treaty partnerships that the United States has, for example, with Australia. So important and critical topic in today's globalized world. So very happy to be here to participate in the DECAL conference. 
one of the things about international law is that many people are confused in what human rights are. There's a widely held misconception that human rights are in fact the rights of humans, but that is not the case. Up until 2007, over 500 million indigenous peoples in the world did not, did not have human rights. This occurred because during the colonial period, only peoples had human rights. So all other humans that were not defined as peoples didn't have any human rights. Uh, where were indigenous peoples? Well, indigenous peoples were called ethnic minorities or minority populations. Ethnic minorities, populations are not humans under international law. So up until 2007, hundreds of millions of colonized indigenous peoples were not given the full measure of or protection of human rights. This ended in 2007 with the passage of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And when that document was passed by the General Assembly and only then, did indigenous peoples allegedly attain the full measure of human rights. Today, uh, we continue to strive to ensure that those rights are meaningful. For example, international law has said that all peoples have the right of self-determination to determine their political status, to freely pursue economic, cultural, and social development only after 2007, were the states in the United Nations made to recognize that we also had the right of self-determination. So rights uh, are written on papers in international law, but in order to breathe life into them, indigenous peoples must come forward and assert their human rights, claim their human rights, and develop their human rights. When we talk about self-determination, we look at the definition. First, it is the right of all peoples to determine their political status. We do that, and not the foreign colonizer through processes such as decolonization, uh, plebiscite, or referendum. But it must come from the indigenous peoples themselves, and along with it, the jurisdiction to exercise over our lands resources, and territories. Uh, that issue involves the entire breadth of the entitlement that we inherit from our kupuna and elders. So it is lands, territories, and resources, as other states in the United Nations have. So when we look at human rights, uh, we're now on solid ground, and it's an exciting time because the United Nations system is beginning to implement and ask states for accountability what is happening with their indigenous peoples. We, on the other hand, now have the authority and need to exercise it to define our political status and then to pursue our cultural, economic, and social development. This, I think, is the agenda 
that we need to return the UN decolonization uh, mandate to. Um, but nevertheless, the, in the Pacific, we are resilient. And I think it, when you look at what is happening now, it's very dynamic and it's very significant. Uh, and it's causing a great deal of concern to some of the old colonial powers, uh, not only the United States, but Australia and others. But change uh, must come. And the indigenous peoples now are coming abreast of international law and looking to exercise their real rights themselves. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, going back to what you said about control over land, resources, territories, especially here, what's happening in Angolan with militarization um, ever since the 50s, pretty much, um, or even right after World War II, you see a lot of Chamorros lose their land and are pretty much told, you know, you can't come back. It's everything's like... <laughs> Pretty much their what their family or ancestral land was is now fenced off. And we could see how the military built up here has really took over the resources, took over our land. Um, and I guess what importance is there with the connection between land and indigenous peoples? You know, indigenous peoples spring from the land. Uh, the land feeds and clothes us. Mm -hmm. The land is really our first mother. But it is not possible to separate indigenous peoples from the land because we are cultural and it is the cultural vehicle, our language, our medicines, our traditional knowledge of the earth and the creatures that dwell thereon. So when you separate an indigenous person from their lands, from their territories and resources, we pay the cost of that. We know now that indigenous health has declined because with the loss of indigenous land title, we were not able to cultivate the traditional food crops that we needed to maintain our health. Uh, now, instead, we see the rise of things like heart, diabetes, cancers. Mm -hmm. And in part, that is due to the fact that when indigenous title was removed, uh, other practices were undertaken that not only toxified the land, but the food that we ate, it's not a mistake that we see significant cancers and illness with indigenous peoples in their community following right behind the militarization of their lands. Uh, you know, there's a connection there that you make. But indigenous cultures cannot be separated from the earth because we are the caretakers. Mm -hmm. We are the guardians of it, and that is our sacred obligation. But if your mother does not feed you, you will surely not survive. Mm -hmm. And I think as Indigenous people, the most important thing, as what Mililani said, that our mother is, is the centre of our universe and that's who we are. It gives us life, it feeds us, it gives us water. And we are like a tree. We are rooted to that, to, to our mother earth. So for us to continue to grow and have that foundation it's really important for us to be connected to our land our land is is our law it has given us the foundation and our identity of who we are 
And this is why I think a lot of Indigenous peoples, uh, because of the force removal of Indigenous people in regards to their land, whether it be for mining or, or militarisation or, or whatever, you know, we're being forcibly removed for, is that the sad part is that it's Indigenous people's health is now one of the biggest threats to us because of our loss of our land and we need to have we need to be on our land because that that's what's that's why we also have a lot of mental health issues with a lot of our indigenous peoples because you know they're lost they're losing their identity they're losing their language once you take indigenous peoples off their land what happens is that we're being forcibly removed into to to the urban areas and then that loses um our languages. The other thing is that we have a lot of elders because of health reasons may have to be relocated into urban areas because the health system is not providing the good basic health of what Indigenous people are needing out in remote areas. So once they go away, that language and our history also goes with them. And so who's going to carry that back on in those communities? This is why, you know, land is we need to have our elders back on our land. We also need to be on our land because mm-hmm. it's the foundation of who we are and it's our, our identity. And that is what makes our spirit so strong and makes us so strong and it's it's that connection that we have. And I think for a lot of Western people, they don't understand that spirituality and that connection for Indigenous people and land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you bring up um, that connection with the land and how important it is being rooted in your culture and your identity because um and especially that how we see it affects mental health today mm-hmm. i feel like uh especially here people don't necessarily directly connect mental health with the loss of land or displacement um so what what advice would you give to i guess indigenous youth that you know feel that they're helpless um especially with everything going on with uh, colonization and its effects, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to them to really help that? For me, I think the advice that I would give give them to help them is to go back and talk to their elders, sit around the round table, you know, and talk to them and, and learn about the history, learn about, about the land, learn about their tradition, learn about their culture, because our elders are the ones who who have that foundation to keep carrying on. They still have our have that language. And it's through them that they can pass that on and empower our youths because our youths, you know, that connection of sitting around the table is also going. And it's really important that we maintain that sitting around the table so that we can talk. That's where you learn all your stories, when you're with that family connection and being there. So my advice is always take time out to sit with your elders. Learn your dancing. Learn, you know, language has gone for a lot of Indigenous people, but it's still there. Somebody may know something. Even if you learn a word each day, learn your language. Also go back and, and understand the history of what's happened for Indigenous people. And, and you know, no matter what, stand and be proud. That's the most important thing. Be proud of who you are as an Indigenous person. Don't try and take an identity of being, a, of, you know, I'm ashamed to be an Indigenous and, you know, because I see, you know, some of my brothers or sisters or family members being drinking or all this. You know, understand why we're in that situation and never be ashamed of who you are, but really go back and listen to your elders because they, we still have a lot of elders who have 
have all that knowledge. And if once they go, all that knowledge and history goes with them. So my advice is go back, sit with your elders. They are our teachers and they can actually build your strength up and give you your spiritual strength and help you identify and also give you that wisdom and vision for where, what your purpose is here as an Indigenous person. See, I think that, you know, I think that the first advice that Sandra is given is very valuable, and that is look first to the source of your own culture, and if you are fortunate enough to have kupuna and elders, seek them out and learn from them. We know that because of Western diet, Western disease, anxiety, and other things, we have a short lifespan. And what that means is for many of our peoples, they don't have kupuna. Uh, they may not even have mother and father. They may be coming from a home that has only one parent. And also those that were removed from the home and raised by others who are not of their kin or bloodline and who may not be able to teach them but the first thing is to find your culture. As a result of colonization, we all lost our culture. And worse, we were spoon-fed a history of lies. But we, as indigenous peoples, have an obligation to inform ourselves who were Kanaka Maoli, how did we govern, what were our government structures, and what were our government values. Uh, no matter how much research, no matter how many interviews, the first obligation is to find out about your culture. And I've been told by some Hawaiian youth it was so difficult because I saw all that I lost. We lost our language, our lands, our medicines, all of it. I told them, look on the other side of the coin. That is the rich legacy that we now have to regain. So many indigenous peoples understand it, that we are literally bringing indigenous language back and we're putting it right into our schools. Everywhere in the Pacific, there are efforts to regain our language. In Aotearoa, they came to just a handful of Maori speakers, now tens of thousands, North and South Island. We have several charter schools. We fought the state until we made the state support and fund our Hawaiian language schools. So claim your history, find your elders, do your own research. Do not just read the colonizers books, but delve deeper. Uh, and I would also encourage you to go to the places that are repositories of our stolen cultural artifacts so that you can see what our people did, or how did our people build the homes they lived in, uh, these kinds of things. And then I think it's important, and I always recommend it, a great writer, Ngugi Wathayango from Africa, wrote a very important book. It's called Decolonize Your Mind. The first thing to decolonize is the thoughts the beliefs that we have and the new colonized system of values that was subtly brought in to replace our cultural foundations. Learn your culture, learn your history, seek first the wisdom of your elders, and then commit yourself to decolonize your mind so that you can regain your right and the power that comes with it to be an indigenous person, to live as Kanaka Maoli and not as a colonized product of Western education. 
uh, I think this is a good way to start on the right track. Yeah, um, just going back to you bringing up um, Wat Yongo, I remember reading that um, in my state and territorial government. So this is where we're really learning about the whole colonial construct or framework of our government here and the territories. And I remember um, the line where he talks about the cultural bomb and how that really stuck in my head, like um, how it is really getting the colonized to not believe in their own language and their own beliefs and their own writings and all that. And um, I really think that's something important or an important first step for people here, especially to really think about what they're learning, what is being taught at school or the universities, because I really didn't have those opportunities to decolonize my mind until I got here and had uh, professors that really brought that up. So I think it's, yeah, it's really important that we need to start thinking of how we can decolonize uh, education, maybe even decolonizing media, you know, stuff like that. So what similarities do you see in the effects of colonization uh, between people of the Pacific or, I mean, any any colonized area really? Well, I think we have a lot of things. You know, when you look at the United Nations idea after World War II, uh, all the peoples who had been occupied, whether by America, by France, or, or by the Germans, the Nazis, the Japanese, there was a promise that you would go through a process that you would regain your right of self-determination. But what we see now in the Pacific was that the administrating agents and states had a different idea. Uh, places such as French Polynesia and American Samoa still exist. Obviously, they were never given the full measure of self-determination. Uh, what we need to do, however, is to impact and change that. So, you know, when we take a look at where we're going to go with this, we need to always ensure that we're setting the agenda uh, and we need to work closely and together. It was not a mistake that France and the U.S., two close allies, decided they weren't going to decolonize the Pacific. Mm -hmm. They needed to test atomic and nuclear weapons. They intended to take that ascendancy for the U.S. national security. Where were these instrumentalities of death and destruction tested and created? Why in Bikini Island? Why in French Polynesia? So that the nuclear fallout and the impact on the peoples and their food sources would be there and not anywhere near France or the United States of America. So, you know, these are the kinds of links that we have to make when we look at where we're going. But I think we... I think we're fully capable of it. Uh, and that is why when you look at Hawaii, when you look at Guam, heavily, heavily militarized by the United States. Uh, in the case of CNMI in Hawaii, there wasn't even a referendum for us. America just said, here's the ballot. Oh, one thing on the ballot. No independence, no free association, one thing. Be a state, and if you don't, we'll continue to manipulate you in every way. Uh, basically being bludgeoned and blackmailing into crossing out that vote. The thing is, is that now we 
have the ability as peoples to exercise our right of self-determination, we need to do so. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure that the people of Guam, Hawaii, or CNMI uh, don't have the ability to have their own self-determined election. You certainly do. You can print up your own ballot uh, and put on it what your people would like to see. But it's really a question of the direction we go with our peoples, and that's why it's important to keep uh, that cohesion with our peoples. Sometimes leaders have a tendency to zoom off, uh, but we are here to represent our peoples and to ensure that they make informed choices. And that's one of the things we're gonna achieve when we put together our Pacific Women's Indigenous uh, Regional Organization. Um, so I, going back to decolonization and what, <laughs> what it means to indigenous peoples. Um, what do you think that looks like? Um, maybe for you in the context of Hawaii and you with Australia, how does it look like for your people? Because what I always think of is how it would look like for Guam, but I wanted to see how do you guys envision that for your people? We have a great diversity of opinion, and I tell you we have strong and loyal Hawaiians who say that it, given our history, how could we have anything other than independence? Mm -hmm. uh, you know the American juridical approach. Everyone occupying our land base would vote. Hard for Hawaiians to achieve any full measure when we're only 12% of the population here in Guahan. You folks are 37%, but it's still far from the 66 plus percent you need. My sense of it is that we need to empower ourselves. Uh, free association is an alternative that doesn't have a legal definition, but what it really means is it's what you can get negotiating at the table uh, with, with the United States. We're not, uh, unfortunately, dealing with New Zealand. Their constitution says no nuclear, but the US and France are not likely to go along with that, uh, given what has happened in the Pacific. But I firmly believe that uh, independence being one option, uh, when you look at the United States, the United States is born from violence. The United States has maintained its power through violence. And when we look at Hawaii and Guam, we see only the continuing push for militarization. Uh, this is telling us something. Uh, in Hawaii, we have those that call for independence. We have others that are saying, let us form our nation. Uh, utilize courts. If American courts will not give us justice, then we have to exhaust remedies. You file in the federal district court, you take it to the appellate Ninth Circuit and thereafter to the US Supreme Court. Anticipating a loss, you are then prepared to go into the international court. But are you prepared at home? Have your people organized? Have they created their own nation? Have they decided which of their lands, which of their resources? Mm, I'm more inclined to take a look at autonomous regions than go with free association, because free association has different meanings depending on what New Zealand and the United States and others want to define it as. But the wheel is still in spin, and I very much support all options proceeding. Uh, there's no reason to fight with our peoples, those who would have total independence, those who would like to take a look at something like autonomy, uh, and those who 
persist in supporting the colonized status quo. We have little in common with them, but to the extent we can proceed in a unified way, we will. And this is why it sometimes is good to look for an internal vote. Indigenous peoples only, let us see among our peoples how many would secede, how many would call for independence. And if it does not come, then what is the second choice? But given we, what we know about America, you know, when, when there were those who were the sons and daughters of American peoples, when they mentioned independence, they had civil war in the United States. Thousands of their own children did they kill for the sake of ensuring that they were unified under one economic structure. Civil war was fought over slavery, not because they loved black people. They weren't even considered human beings until 2007, but they were cheap and free labor that you could whip into service. That's not the structure of indigenous peoples, and it's not what we want if we can encourage diversity among our peoples. And then take our own ballot, go to the islands, talk with our communities. If the majority wish to go with independence, see how we can pursue it without having to take the gun. I don't know if we can achieve it with the US, but if our peoples determine that they should set their own course and they wish to step as far away as they can, then looking at things like the creation of an autonomous region, and there are many in the world. Uh, we will explore that. But we are running this generation. They thought they killed us all. But, you know, we are still here. And what we move in our lifetime, our children and Mo'opuna will carry forward. So we may not come to the end solution, but that's not our job. Our job is to generate the activity towards the return of our lands, our resources, our territories, and our right of self-determination. You know, it is the Pacific way that those who are the kupuna go forward and they pass the torch to the makua, and they go forward and pass to the opio. And as we educate our keiki, they will then take their place. So it's an ongoing process, but that is the way it is that we care for our lands and our peoples. It will never end for us. And I think um, to add on to that, I, even though we are the lowest percentage of people in, in our lands and Australia is, is very similar, I think we've got to remember we are the largest human rights movement in the world as a collective. So there's over 350 million of us and we must not forget that. We are the largest human rights movements in the world. So I think what we've got to look at doing also is, for me, I think no laws, no policies, everything was, we were excluded at the table on everything. But if you have a look at it, over the years, things are slowly changing. They're not changing quick, but we are making, we are not, the thing is, we cannot be silent anymore because the laws and the governments, everyone has seen us as the invisible people, we are silent. But we do have to ha have a voice. We need to raise our voice. And one of the things that we have to do is look at the, and challenging that system. It's in particular, I look at it, that we've got to make a lot more 
challenges in the courts and we also got to make a lot more challenges with ourselves and look towards self-determination within ourselves. We shouldn't have to be asking, oh, can we do this or can we do that or should we be doing this? You know, when people come out to our communities, especially if it's a university or somebody who wants to film or something, Indigenous people have a right to free prime form consent. We need to start making up our own contracts and saying, well, you know what, if you want to come to our community, you need to look at our contract. We're not going to look at yours because if you want to talk, you talk to us as a collective. And we need to look at benefit sharing because we are the poorest people in the world, but when we are the, have the richest culture and everybody wants to come out and, and have a look at what we're doing, who we are and look at our culture. So we've got to empower ourselves and have that knowledge that we as Indigenous people have that free prime form consent. So make sure that we put things in, our, in place instead of always the Western way. Oh, okay, well, we'll look at teaching our people that we, we can, you know, look at the contracts, go and get a lawyer. No, no. You need to write your own contracts out. You need, we need to be doing our own things and making our own stands and saying, hey, you know what, when you come to us, this is what we want you to be doing. We've got to start being our voice and raising our voice and putting those things in place. We need to also be push the boundaries as far as you can go. Look at the legal system. Keep challenging it. Keep making changes. We've got to start turning the wrongs into right and rewrite the laws and, and the policies that have excluded us and we need to start including us and being a voice at that table when we are making those changes. And the only way we're going to be, do that is by continually challenge the system. You know what? We may we, uh, win at times and we may lose, but it doesn't matter as long as we keep challenging that system. That's the most important thing. Don't be intimidated. Don't be, don't be frightened of doing something. Look, and I'll just give you an example of in Australia through just I'll run two cases by you. So what happened is that there was an Aboriginal man out in a remote community and he he worked on a – they had a big property and they were working on and that the WIC nation wanted to buy that from the this American guy who owned the property. And so they went to buy it and they were going to have a, one of the largest cattle stations in Queensland where I'm from. And our premier at that time, our leader of our state, said, no, you know what, Aboriginal people should not own a large area of land. We don't want them to have – they don't have a right to have a large area of land. So what he did is that he said no, he t said no, no deal on. But what happened was the, the person from the WIC nation then took it to the Racial Discrimination Court and said, no, you know, that's racially discriminatory. We should be able to do that. But what happened was that – the Premier then overturned it and turned it into a national park, bang, shut the whole lot down. But you know what? Years come later, Mabo then took it up again and then we got our native title. So, you know, we've got to keep challenging. Somebody may not win at that time, but later on down the track they may win that, may win back that recognition to land. And it's another thing that, you know, we need to look at some of these precedents that have been set down by our own Indigenous peoples in the world and we need to have a look at how some of them won their cases and what they're doing. We need to look at the international courts. We need to be, you know what, just be brave. Be brave. And all of us as a collective need to be brave. You know what? 350 million of us, if we said we're going to shut down something, I tell you what, we can all shut down something in one day if we really decided to do that. If we said we're not going to go to BHB for a week, 
all of us as Indigenous people, bang, that's a lot of that people power and that's what we need to start thinking as a collective to, to decolonise what has colonised us. So, you know, I always say challenge it, don't be afraid, be brave and, you know, take that system on. Even if you even, you know, I didn't learn about things until I went to university to get a law degree. I did not even learn while I was at university about the doctrine of discovery. It was until after I left law school that I learned about it. These things that, you know, that are there that have really put some of us in a not good situation where we're really bounded, we've got shackles around us, we need to have a look at how we can unshackle ourselves through through the system that has shackled us. Take the system on. Um, So going back to you saying how we're 250 million strong, you know, um, how can we support each other or show solidarity um, in this decolonization process? You know what? We're doing it now. Yeah. You have a look at how many, you know, today sitting in the room, we were from different nations, even though we're in the Pacific. We're doing it now by getting together, by working together. You know, media, Facebook, all of those different things. Connect ourselves up. When you do this, we will share it on our Facebook page. So, you know, it's about that information sharing, building things up, and it's about doing things, you know, together and about looking at, okay, if somebody wants to take this challenge on, how do we support them in that? And it's also about working to diff- working as a collective because, for example, and this is just hypothetically, for example, if someone said, you know, we're going to shut this down, you put it on Facebook, you put it out on media so much today, bang. Word spreads like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also um, something important with the uh, Mauna Kea movement right now is that everything's on social media. Right. So yes. the word's really getting out there and people are sharing all the videos. And Yes. Yeah. It has just shocked the state of Hawaii uh, and it has really exposed the, the effort that they are making now to advance uh, what they're saying is commercial science. Mm. But when you take a look at all the telescopes up in our sacred Mauna, uh, it's hard not to see how many of them are actually related to the U.S. military machine in one way or another. Um, I think another thing, though, about um, trying to further our effort to work together with other indigenous, uh, one thing is to continue to have a presence in the international arena. Um, I think it is important that we have indigenous peoples at the United Nations, not only in the indigenous areas, but, you know, we're in the Pacific. We are losing our islands to climate change. We need to be involved in the UN discussions on climate change, and we need to call them on it. That's where the declaration standard is. We need the support of that. And along with climate change, we're looking at losing traditional food sources, So we need to get over there and talk with the fellows over at the FAO, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Association. Uh, There's not just uh, commercial farming. Uh, with a lot of fertilizers. There's traditional ways of farming, creating sustainable crops without toxifying. So there's a reason for us to be there. 
But most importantly, there is a reason for us to organize in our regions. We have the cultural affiliations. We have common food resources right in the ocean. Uh, we have common uh, uh, concerns when that ocean is toxified with nuclear waste or any other type of, uh, you know, chemical waste. So we need to build those kinds of alliances within our region. I think it's important to support general human rights and to work with Africa and Central and South America. We can't ignore it. We tend to focus and we will focus here uh, on the South Pacific. But I always look for Rapa Nui, Rapa Nui that is, was taken by Peru. Rapa Nui was the only one of the Polynesian cultures that was rendered to slavery. And we ourselves sometimes gather without recalling them. They are our ohana. So as we move forward in the South Pacific, we're going to have to reach out to the furthest away. Uh, Hawaii has come. Hawaii is here. But where is Rapa Nui? Uh, they have these same needs. So I think building understanding our region and making sure that there is place at the table and looking to the basic needs, food, shelter, uh, all of these things, that, that these things become the kuleana, the responsibility of our regional groups. So yes, be present and work in the global arena, but direct your first attention to your land base at home and to those in your region. Uh, we have great diversity. We're not all Polynesians. We have Micronesia. We have Melanesia. So we need to really create those intercultural bonds. Uh, you know, when you look at Africa, it is so tragic because the tribal disagreements, the Hutu and the Tutsi still reel up uh, uh, and with bloodshed and with violence. But they are there because they were never truly decolonized. Um, the idea was let's grant as much of Africa independence as quickly as possible because we've got to get down there. Bring the American and European corporations, get the contract signed so that we can start mining. And that's really what happened in Australia. Mm -hmm. That's why the great mining corporations of the all world ran down there. You know, we have to look at both sides of what colonization did to us. But there were many who were granted independence so they could independently sign off the contract for the colonizing corporations. That's why foreign corporations own huge resources in Africa, Central, South America, and Asia. Um, and we're going to have to change that history and bring it back to self-determined history. Well, I guess, um, did you guys just want to talk about um, the conference and what you'll be discussing? I think that tonight, a very momentous and significant achievement is celebrated because tonight we will bring together many in our Pacific region to form a strong and permanent Pacific Women's Network, mm -hmm. and it will advance our human rights, uh, the protection of our lands, territories, and resources. We believe that it will restore our health, but we will proceed with claiming our own right of self-determination. Very appropriately that following that, we'll be moving on to a two-day conference on decolonization. 
it is still a topic. Uh, decolonization is nothing that's going to be terminated by a court decision on paper written by a group of white men thousands of miles away. Self-determination is vibrant. Uh, it is something that we live and breathe. So when we take a look at the decolonization agenda, uh, we do it uh, with perhaps a jaundiced eye, but with an honest eye towards advancing our people. Uh, just as we were discussing the, the removal of Hawaii from the list, uh, what happened in CNMI, uh, the thing is, is that these are current situations that have to be remedied in the future. Um, they thought when they made Hawaii the 50th state that that was going to be uh, the end of it. Uh, you know, obviously not given the situation in Hawaii, their plan that Hawaii would be the buffer zone. When it proved true, the Japanese came, they didn't bomb California. They didn't go to Wisconsin or Wyoming. They came to Hawaii. Uh, and that is something that you don't erase from your mind. Uh, and so we have to remedy that as well. But the thing is, is that human, human culture and indigenous culture is very vibrant. Uh, recently, we demonstrated that by getting the university in Hilo to recognize our history. And it was very significant that we told them we will not tolerate anymore a flagpole with the U.S. flag at the top and Hawaii's flag at the bottom nor will we tolerate two flagpoles with America's being 17 feet and Hawaii's being 10. When you go to the university in Hilo now, there's two flagpoles because our flag would not fly with theirs and both are equal. And that is what we are striving for, just in kind of a graphic way. But, um, you know, we're vibrant. You know, the greatest lie they told us was that our warriors had been slain on the battlefield, that they had died, our great chiefs. What ridiculous prattle. As indigenous peoples, we know the truth because the earth is our mother and the earth uh, perpetuates life by selecting the strongest of her sons and daughters to survive. We are the ones who have survived. We have survived every unspeakable crime, slavery, torture, uh, but we are here, are we not? And we are here because our genetic and our cultural foundation is so strong. Try to extinguish it as much as they do. They continue to fail. And so our job is just to demonstrate that in our resiliency and regain back. Uh, what belongs to our grandchildren. Uh, what a great commitment we have. Uh, and I think that the resiliency is shown right here with these two conferences. Uh, no one gives up here. When we leave here, there will be a strong uh, and a very lasting Indigenous women's uh, regional organization. And there will be a clear strategy for taking a look at where we're gonna go in the next step for decolonization. Uh, it's not something that a few ambassadors out of Washington or anywhere else will ever define for us. 
Uh, I just think that, you know, the women's conference and the conference, the decolonisation conference, I think with the women, meeting with the women tonight and also about the women's group, the Pacific Women's Group, Indigenous Women's Group, I think it's really empowering. I think it's really important because people don't realise how large the Pacific is and how many different islands we have, how many different dialects there are across and the needs of Indigenous people out in the, in the Pacific. And in particular, the, the issues that are going on, especially when it comes to climate change, because some of our islands are going under and those people will have to relocate. Mm-hmm. They'll end up becoming climate change refugees mm-hmm. in the end. And the thing is, Indigenous women we're the birth of the nation. So it's important that we become more of a voice together and a collective voice in the Pacific. And I'm really honoured to be here and to be part of that, the, this group, uh, the Indigenous Women's Group. And I think that we can build on that, that. And I think the most important thing is that it raises the voices of women because women are now stepping up and being, and not just being mothers at home we're also being educators we're being lawyers we're being we're we're just being women you know using our rights to be able to be a voice and raise some of the issues that are very relevant to to women in particular domestic violence um self-determination when it comes to owning a business or making an economic game for us for ourselves and becoming independent as well but also about nurturing our our families and as well as growing our, the minds of our children and our grandchildren. I think it's really important that this group is together. We're becoming more of a collective and that will raise, raise those voices, in, in particular in remote areas, who haven't had that voice, it'll bring them into the conversation and they can also be at the table and we must include them. And I think having the conference for the next two days, I'm looking forward to that because as we know, you had a march just recently and over 2,000 people went to that decolonisation march and I, and I think the fire is starting to burn a little bit here in uh, on Guam and having this, it'll light the fire a bit more and it'll especially it'll light the spirit of, of Indigenous people and it'll, it'll make, you know, it's about empowering them in the minds to, uh, to continue to fight for their self-determination and also have a look at how they want to continue to decolonise themselves and w- what they can do as an, uh, and to grow independently and to become their own voice because you have a really lot of issues here. This is my first time to Guam and to be truthful, I didn't realise some of the issues that were going on but for me to come over, I can spread that information and I think it's it's right and Guam is now raising that awareness because I know that, you know, people uh, have looked at, you know, the marches that you had and I think raising that awareness, it'll raise that awareness within yourselves and that's where it's really got to come from and give you more of an understanding of what decolonisation is about, self-determination, free prime form consent, what the international instruments are and how you can really put those into the to the domestic areas that you need to do that because we can provide and we can all share that but it's at the end of the day it's how we can implement that into our, our domestic laws and policies mm-hmm. because we know where we need to ha- make those changes 
and this will give, this will empower you. I mean, I know myself just coming here and, and just being involved in the last couple of days and being with Nalani and meeting all the women and meeting, you know, people here, it's, it's really empowering me. And that's what, when you have these conferences like that, everyone will go away empowered and that's what we've got to continue to do. And I think coming here is a really... Having this uh, conference at this time is really relevant to the people of Guam and to the people in the Pacific. So I'm really looking forward to more conversations about this and also meeting with more women tonight. It's it's very empowering. Yeah, so um, we're just about on coming up on our time for the show. Um, I really enjoyed having this dialogue with you and I really learned a lot also. Um, I guess before we finished, did you guys have any last thoughts that you wanted to share? You know, on that last question, uh, what I wanted to end with by was just saying aloha and mahalo to all the people who came forward for us for Mauna Kea. You know, we're, we're only 12% now of the, of the ones that occupy our land base. But the global response has been so uh, uplifting and empowering for our peoples. And when we look to see voices of indigenous peoples from all over the world, and many who were not, uh, it shows us how really strong we really are. Uh, the time for hiding the little colonial sins and covering up the graves has long since passed. And because of the internet, because of social media, we're able to hear the truth from our indigenous brothers and sisters. Uh, if there are any in need, wherever you are, let Kanaka Maoli know. Uh, and we will send what help we can and have faith. Uh, because when the women of the world organize, when the women of our region come forward, uh, it will be something that will unfold, uh, the likes of which has not been seen by the colonizer since the last era. We will not only advance our people's rights, but we will birth a new generation of warriors that will not be on their battlefield, but we will fight in every arena for health, for education, uh, for the sustainability of our right to uh, grow our food. Uh, it is coming now and it's gonna break like a big wave. You know, we are so resilient. Uh, the old colonial period is fading. And now they have to deal with new weapons and it is the thought and the commitment in the heart of those who were subverted in the last generation. We live to see the rising of that time and the torch we pass to the younger generation. Uh, the mothers of nations come forward now uh, and the children of those mothers will be the leaders and the spokespersons of the nations. So it's a time to celebrate uh, the coming of this huli, this turning. Uh, you know, they say kahuliyao, the, the heavens turn. Uh, we witness it right now in the South Pacific. You know, it's just, it's just something to thank the creator that we are part of. And it's so beautiful to see all the Pacific cultures. It's just a beautiful thing to be part of. 
for myself, I'd like to say to those who are listening to, you know, continue to stand strong and stand proud. That's the most important thing that you can do. Stay proud and stand strong. And also remember that we're now having that opportunity to negotiate. And when you are out there negotiating, remember you're just not negotiating for now or for this year or for next year. But continue to remember that when you negotiate, you go, we're negotiating for the next seven generations. And as Indigenous people, that's what we must do. We're right. We're starting to rise. And as Milani said, you know, it will be our children and our grandchildren who will continue our fight on and we must empower them and also educate them in the home. It's about us educating them. It's about truth-telling and that's what we must do as Indigenous people. We must do that truth-telling because it's up to us to be able to tell the truth. Otherwise, the truth's never going to come out and the un- people to understand the history and what we're doing to move us forward. If we don't do that truth-telling... You know, it's we're still going to continue living a life of lies. So to overcome that, you know, go out and do the truth telling. Say what you've got to say, but while you're saying it, do it with integrity, and also keep standing strong and stay strong. And like I said, continue to do it for the next seven generations. It's not about now, and also don't do it about. And when you're doing these sorts of different things, don't do it as a business as usual. You do it with a business. With with love in your heart, mind and spirit as an Indigenous person in this world because you have a right to be here and we have a right to our culture, our land, our history and our language and we have a right to our identity as Indigenous people. So thank you. So I just want to say thank you both for coming here today and coming on Fanatsu. It was really something I enjoyed because when I was told about you guys coming on the show, I kind of fangirled <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, was, I really enjoyed this opportunity. And to all those watching out there again, um, if you're unable to attend the decolonization conference, it'll be uh, streamed or on P- PBS uh YouTube on the PBS YouTube channel and also on the PBS channel on TV um, and if um, and uh, if you guys would like to learn more about these two intelligent indigenous women you know search them up on YouTube or uh, Google, Google. <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you very much again for coming on and um, mahalo uh, thank you Oh, hey.